This evening at the Uposatha fortnightly recitation, the new moon or the no moon. And so uh, let's, let's see the psychological significance of this fortnightly kind of determination. If you've been doing it for 45 years, like 44, 45 years, like I've been doing. At first, it seemed like this merely kind of perfunctory traditional ceremony, but over the years, it has its uh, kind of effect in the sense of, of uh, like cleaning the slate or wiping the, the slate clean every fortnight because we accumulate, we yeah, get caught in doubts or or uh, about our behavior, speech, and you know, our discipline, so forth. So then the fortnightly confession, and then the recitation of Hadimoka or the sila. Taking the sila is a, a way of reminding ourselves. It's a ceremony, so it is. Is done in a ceremonial fashion. So, this has this this means that it it's a kind of it has a tradition behind it. It's not just individual uh, kind of uh, adaptation or views or opinions. Ceremonies are something that modern life doesn't really appreciate very much because it's such a such an age for you know kind of. Thumbing your nose at tradition, ceremonies, old-fashioned customs, and things of the past. And everything is about progress and change and renewing and improving. <clears throat> but a society without ceremony, then of course, has its. It becomes a kind of uh, each one for themselves. It lacks a certain grace and dignity and quality that tradition offers and and ceremonies help us to to remind ourselves uh, that isn't just uh, you know some kind of personal interest in life but the commitments we've made the tradition we're in and the uh, goal the aim the purpose of our life and so we use this old-fashioned language, Pali language, because uh, even though we have translations, because it is kind of preserves that ceremonial tradition. It has a kind of uh, grace and dignity, beauty to it. At least this is how I see it. <clears throat> I remember going to years ago to a Buddhist community 
when I first came to England, uh, set up on modern principles, you know, of just sitting meditation, no Buddha rupas, no incense, no uh, ceremonies, no parley, no precepts, nothing but just sit and meditate, and uh, and then it's all about uh, freedom, and so it, this idea of being free and meditation is very much, uh, you know, the kind of appeal of the certain mind, the European or Western mindset. But it was a pretty uh, hopeless situation, didn't last very long because it, <laughs> there's nothing to hold it together and uh, and just sitting is not enough, is it? It's just, you know, sitting quietly and then the, there is no kind of uh, sense of duties or or commitment to anything other than one's own freedom and views and opinions. It is a time where, you know, it, it has its advantages not to, you know, diminish or criticize the time as if and just uh, see it as in, in negative terms because it, certainly there's uh, you know, good things happening. But also, uh, it has its own problems because individuality and personal views and opinions, human rights and so forth have, you know, the, you know, that's not to be despised, but they also have their dark side in the sense that, that we, uh, we create, a we get too self-important, we take ourselves too seriously. Our lives, uh, you know, we see everything too personally and, uh, and from an ideal that we personally adhere to. <clears throat> and of course that, you know, sometimes we, we can't even laugh at ourselves because we're so deadly serious about my opinion and what I think and my rights and so forth, that uh, we become uh, dull and stupid by these these fixed ideas and our self-importance. Humor, one thing uh, here in Britain, they do have a good sense of humor, so they, some of the British humor is very funny because it is making fun of themselves, or being British or English, things like this, because when we take ourselves too seriously, like our nationality or our position or anything, then it it becomes grotesque, isn't it? We we fit into a kind of grotesque mask of self-importance and and deadly seriousness. The world is absurd, you know the 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 machinations and the conceits and arrogance of human beings is is a, is a, an absurdity and so you know just to get a taste of the world i i found this very useful uh, way of contemplating the world worldly dhammas has a certain flavor to it uh, you know it's it's never quite Right, there's always something a bit off. Uh, 
it's uh, in a doesn't really satisfy. There's always a sense of worry or something going wrong or not some some problems, uh, imminent danger or fear of failure or regrets and guilt and and so forth. That that is the uh, taste of the world. Lokya Dhamma, you know, it's the the world tastes like this. It always leaves you dissatisfied and anxious and feeling that something's lacking, something's missing. And even at its best, you know, even at peak moments where everything is, is you know, just what one wants in the moment, you know, it, you can't sustain a peak moment. You know, the conditioned realm has peak moments where everything is, you know, you have to Everything's just what I want, everything's perfect, couldn't be better. But you can't sustain that. Condition phenomena at its peak means that it's, you know, going the other direction. It rises up and then the peak moment and then it, it has only one way to go and that's down. So this, this inhalation, exhalation, this changing birth and death, rebirth, and death is the is the result of birth. And so this is, you know, if we were never born, we would never die. Right? It's just uh, good logic, isn't it? So the cause of death is birth. <coughs> then uh, ignorance, human ignorance not understanding this, then we we tend to take, we, we think that birth should be, you know, there shouldn't be death, that there should be birth. We like the idea of birth and peak moments and, uh, and the best. We'd like to have life always at its best, at its peak, at its most beautiful, most pleasing, most sense of secure safety and love and kindness and and all the the highest possible ideal that uh, one can conceive of. But you notice the the devadutas or the messengers were were not about beautiful babies and romance and love and and all that, but about old age, sickness, and death. And so this is. Because this side of the uh, spectrum is is not what we like, you know. It's it's the the downhill slide, the decaying process, the aging, the sickness, pain, loss. So the taste of the world is is the taste of loss, of grief, of sickness, old age. Because one leads to the other, the birth, the youth, the the beauty reaches peak, and then all that's left to us is the other side. And that's uh, and so this the Buddha was pointing to that by not penetrating this with wisdom, by not observing this simple pattern of existence, uh, then we suffer needlessly because we're we're always eating tasting, 
the flavor of death and loss and despair. It's always slightly off or at worst, you know, it can be really horrible, tainted or it's not ever really satisfying. So in this, this way of reflecting, not to be morbid about life, but pointing out, you know, in this way that, that this what we're experiencing, this physical body, its breathing and its feeling and its aging and so forth is, is not self. It is what it is and it's, uh, you know, to be seen, to be recognized with wisdom rather than with uh, ignorance and and then the uh, inevitable suffering we create around the changing conditions. <clears throat> so in my own practice, you know, this, there's the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned. Uh, therefore, there is escape from the born, the created, the formed, the conditioned. So, you know, just when life gets difficult, problematic, old, unsatisfactory, stressful. Uh, that's, that's the taste of the world. Really taste it, you know. Don't just struggle against it or, or wallow in it or try to suppress it or ignore it, but taste it. You know, don't blame it on anybody or, you know, that's, that's a way of kind of not tasting the world by saying it, it's somebody's fault because it doesn't taste good. But the world is like this. It's stressful. It's unsatisfying. It's always about this. It's, it's about death, loss, despair. And that's the flavor of all conditions, you know, our impermanence, the place on Granicha. There is an escape, though. There is an escape from the born, the created, the formed, the conditioned, because there is the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned. So what's the flavor of the unconditioned? Now this is discerning. It doesn't have a flavor. It doesn't taste like anything, but it is reality itself. And so, you, you know, this, this way of mindfulness is discerning, knowing the world tastes like this. The, the unconditioned is like this. And it's, it's not suffering, it's not death, it's not me, it's not about me or you or what I think or feel or these things, these conditions operate because of karma, but, but there's a knowing, a discernment of the deathless, the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned. This is it. It's recognizable. It's real. It's not just a foggy metaphysical theory. You know, so the Buddha wasn't you know, speculating about ultimate reality or, you know, proclaiming all kinds of philosoph philosophical 
uh, interpretations about ultimate reality. Notice the very terms the Buddha used, unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned. There's just a negation of born, created, formed, conditioned. And so this, this is, uh, is uh, you know, what is the unborn, uncreated? What is it at this very moment? If there's escape from the born, if there's escape from the body, they were all sitting here with our bodies in whatever condition they happen to be in at this moment. Well, the body's a condition, it's conditioned, isn't it? And it's going to die. And so, uh, what is the unborn then? In the, this is born, physical body's born. What is the unborn? And this is a way of, of, uh, you know, of reflecting. These are like questions to ask yourself. It's not about, some kind of intellectualizing about the unborn is, you know, it's not a thought, but the escape, there is the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned. What is it? In terms of, from this point here, sitting, in this body sitting here, certainly not the body, not thoughts, not emotions. But then mindfulness, isn't it? Mindfulness is the, is the escape hatch. That's the only possibility there is in this realm of, of the born, the created, the form, the condition. I mean, it does seem hopeless, you know, when you, when you just try to think about it and analyze it and speculate about it because the thinking process is born, created, formed, conditioned. You know, it can't, it can't, you can't recognize unborn with thoughts. You can't analyze it. It's not a thought, you know. So thoughts, you have to give up thoughts and definitions and doctrines and all the rest just to just pure awareness in the present. Ultimate simplicity. This is so simple. Just this attentiveness in the present. Well, and for me, it means it's very, you know, because I've done this for so many years. You know, it's... You know, at first I, I, you know, get lost in my own tendencies to want to analyze and think and figure it all out and get caught in doubt and then want to define in my mind because I've, you know, I've been educated so I'm programmed to think about things and reality has to be defined. You have to have a definition. You have to have words and concepts and authorities. You have to have go to authorities about what reality really is and and so forth so that the the personality the the tendency the habit tendency of an educated person is like this 
But then, you know, you end up just doubting, never being quite sure, doubting the authorities, doubting yourself. So the, the escape hatch then isn't through, through analysis or forming views and opinions or through uh, just believing what authorities tell you, but in awakened attention. It's just the most simple reality of the present. So this is like, like uh, consciousness, you know, this, uh, this experience where we're all conscious forms. Each one of us is experiencing consciousness through a form, through the body. So just pointing it out the way it is in this moment, each one of us has to, we're conscious, there's consciousness, but we're, but we're limited in the form. We have this human body sitting here and it's conscious form. And in consciousness, then, it, you can't define it, you can't, you, because you are that. I mean, it's not something that you can objectify, but you can certainly recognize. And then one way of recognizing, just being aware of the body, you know, in this presence of sitting, the pressure of sitting, sitting on, on the mats like this. There's consciousness and awareness focused on the reality of this body as you experience it in the present moment is like this. And it's not personal, it's not, it's not about, you know, me, how well I sit or don't sit or whatever, it's about just recognizing that, you know, observing that that, that which is aware of the body, the body can't be aware of itself, emotions can't your feelings can't be aware of the body. But consciousness and mindfulness, then body is, is recognized, it's like this. Now what's that about? So can you claim consciousness as some kind of personal quality? <laughs> is my, my Ajahn Sumedho consciousness? is separate, you know, I, my consciousness and your consciousness, then I'm using words again, you know, I'm using the pronouns, English pronouns, my consciousness, your consciousness. Fair enough, this is a way of talking and thinking, but is it, is it really the way it is? You know, when I talk about me and you, is this, is this more just convention, language and and the limitation we have through thinking and through grammar. <clears throat> so then mindfulness, sati sampatanya, is the, is the ability that each one of us has to embrace the totality of this moment. Uh, you know, not just focused on one thing. You know, the, the body is a reflection but in, in Sati Sampatanya, it, it's ability to, to embrace the moment in its totality. 
It's not, so the object of the present moment is the totality, not the one thing, just the body or the shrine or the whatever. It's not a thing anymore. As, as one object that one focuses on. So this sense of this embracing consciousness includes everything. Even within the, you know, the, the fact that we are limited in form, but consciousness is unlimited. But we have to experience the unlimited from the limitation of a form. So what is that? What do I mean by that? You know, it's a, it, you can't explain it, but you can certainly reflect on it. So what I'm doing now is merely just trying to stimulate you to reflect on being alive, breathing, feeling, and consciousness combined with mindfulness and wisdom. Because this is, this is the escape hatch. There is the escape from the born, the created, the formed, the conditioned, because there is the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned. No, I think that's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, because it is, it's absolutely brilliant. They're, they're, I mean, this, this kind of way of reflecting is available to us. Because it, you know, it, certainly I wouldn't, even personally, would never come up with this kind of, <laughs> you know, it's beyond me as a personal, my own kind of personal karma and tendencies. It's, it's through the, you know, this excellent, uh, uh, teaching of the Buddha. But it certainly is, you know, a teaching that, that one can use in a very practical way to reflect on the, on the reality, ultimate reality, to recognize it. And to ha then have perspective on birth and death. And so this is a death realm, you know, this is all, this realm is all about death. <clears throat> Everything, we all have to die. Death is, uh, is, you know, the, what we all will experience when the time comes, the physical death. We all have to experience the death of friends, of parents, of pets of all kinds of things, you know, just before we die. And that's grief, isn't it? We, we have to live and then experience loss, the death of parents, grandparents, relatives, our own children, everything, you know, the pets, we, we feel grief when, when our beloved cat dies. We can make fun of that because, but it is, it's real grief, isn't it? Because one gets, uh, you know, very attached. One can get very, feel great affection, love, and attachment to a, to a cat or a dog, to a parakeet. A goldfish. <laughs> 
<laughs> One time I was visiting my sister in San Diego and she is grief-stricken because her favorite uh, rose died. And she was crying. And I said, what's the matter? You know, what happened? <laughs> my rose. <laughs> you know, so I mean, I thought, my God. Grief over a rose, you know. My, I mean, who am I? You know, maybe I wouldn't particularly feel that, but my sister is certainly feeling grief over that. Is that, that's, the, what is it then? The loss of something maybe you, you've nurtured, you've grown very fond of, you love, whether it be uh, like a rose or a cat or dog or a friend, whatever. It's like this. Grief is, 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 the, is, this is a realm of grief, of loss, separation. All is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become separated from me. Now, the Buddha was, you know, pointing out, this is, the, this is what life's about. It's not trying to be morbid and negative and, uh, about existence, but it's pointing to this realm to look at it in a different way than try to expect it to be something it can never be. That's what's so absurd about our lives is we're, we're, we're trying to perfect the imperfect, trying to find immortality in the mortal, trying to find security in the insecure, trying to find eternal use and beauty in, in uh, conditions that can only change. They have no permanent ability to sustain the peak of anything. So it's, it's uh, so that this awakenness, it's a compassion awakenness. It's not a morbid reflection, a kind of negative view of life, but it's a compassionate pointing at the way things are so that that we can, we can cope with the changing conditions. We have, you know, human individuals, we, we can, we can take pain and grief and loss and disease and humiliation and despair and disappointment and all the rest. All these things are bearable. That's the taste of the world. When we know the world is the world, then we don't you know, we can cope with uh, the way it affects this form, you know, the, the conditions that impinge and, and, and that, that affect me. You know, the, the success, the failure, praise, blame, and all the rest. The, the vipaka kama, in other words, of, of, the, of this form, whatever it might be, you know, health or good health, bad health, success, failure, praise, blame, good fortune, bad fortune. These are all bearable because we one can see them in terms of Dhamma rather than in terms of ignorance. You know, that I don't want, 
I don't want my loved one to die. I want our love to last forever, for eternity. And so you hear these romantic images of our love will last forever and ever, forever and ever and ever. (laughs) And uh, on and on like that. It's it's the kind of wish, isn't it? But, uh, and that, and then we're going to be disappointed because that's not the way it is. We, become, we can become cynical, disillusioned, embittered because life isn't what we want it to be, what we expect it or, you know, hope life will be for us. So the awakenedness is, is not about trying to uh, paint everything pink and, and, and pretend that everything will be a beautiful pink forever. But tasting, tasting this, what ignorance is of wanting, not wanting, fearing, desiring, dreading, and, and all the rest, the human emotions that, that we all experience to recognize that the taste of the world is a taste of death, of loss. That's why it it can't be any other way. But our awakening to that, knowing the world is the world, then the beauty of the world is, can be enjoyed without being grasped. Kiss the joy as it flies, is Blake's poem. He who binds to himself a joy doth the winged life destroy. So I mean, it's like when we try to hold on to joy and love and happiness and romance and youth, isn't it? He who binds to himself a joy. That's what ignorance is of each, isn't it? I want to be young forever. I want beauty. I want happiness, good health, the, the beautiful side, and bind it to me, hold on, grasp it, embrace it and try to hold it and keep it Doth the winged life destroy? The good reflection. He who binds to himself a joy, doth the winged life destroy? Winged life, isn't it? It's, it's not about holding on to, to something that you like and want. Or joy, holding on to joy. You destroy it. You, you kill the joy become a killjoy. But he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity sunrise. So, and this is a beautiful image, isn't it? Joy is part of life, you know. It's not, not say, you sh- joy is, is something bad or we, we shouldn't recognize it or see it in negative terms. It's not a rejection, but a, it's like a, a kiss 
kiss the joy as it flies. Let it go. Don't try to hold on to to life and what you want and the the beauty and and that that we experience in life. But kiss it as it flies. Lives in eternity, sunrise. I found that a very good reflective poem, William Blake. You know, it's quite Buddhist, really. <laughs> <clears throat> so you see, all the misery of life is trying to hold on to things, bind to ourselves the joy, and uh, and of course, we're only going to fail at it. It can't be. It's impossible. So, I mean, when we're young, we, we're naive, we don't know any better. But if we don't awaken, you know, if we don't meditate and observe, then as we get older, we just become bitter, cynical, disappointed, depressed. Because, you know, when we're young, we're expecting, speaking for myself, you know, I was expecting... When I was young, I was expecting life to, uh, you know, I was going to live my life and, you know, I could see my parents. I didn't want to live like them. I was going to do better than they did. <laughs> Only, what a disappointment. Age 30, I'd failed. 20, I had great hopes. By age 30, I was a cynic. Life wasn't what I wanted and I didn't succeed in in binding the joy to myself at all. In fact, I became quite embittered and cynical. So then this, this uh, you know, the, because of the this good fortune, good karma I have of this uh, fascination, this infatuation, this love for the Buddha's teaching, and of course this gave me a chance to put all this into perspective, my suffering, my disappointment with myself, with life, with the world that I lived in. So the, the taste of the world, uh, taste it. Don't be, you know, don't go around fighting against it or putting it down. Just the world, when you feel bad or feel confused or despairing or disillusioned or whatever, taste it. It's like this. You know, really, you know, feel it, taste it. So you know, this the world is this way. Conditioned phenomenon is like this. And then, that which is aware of the taste of the world. And that means you're, you know, you're, you're tasting, you're recognizing, taste the world like this, but that which recognizes the taste 
And that's a discerning ability, mindfulness. That doesn't have a taste, but it's real. And it's non-suffering, it's the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned. Therefore, there is the escape from the born, the created, the formed, the conditioned. Now this is a time where, you know, the, 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 the ominous signs of, you know, the climate change, the overpopulation, the, you know, there's so many ominous signs now, you know, that every day you hear of, you know, of course the mass, the media, report everything, you know, in some remote island in the Pacific Ocean, we hear about it, where maybe 50 years ago, 100 years ago, I wouldn't know anything about it. <laughs> now we know everything. You know, every, every dismal thing that happens is, is news. <clears throat> there is a huge human population on this planet, and there are endless problems. But, you know, in every way, personal, societal, economic, political, everything. That the world is a problem. That's its very nature. It's problematic. It's unsatisfying. And so there are solutions to problems, but then there are other problems. So, the, you know, even though you might find a solution for one thing, then there's another one. Uh, because that's the nature of the world, the changing conditions. You can't kind of control it and, and arrange it so that it suits you. All you can do, really, is observe it. And so the escape hatch is the mindfulness, the observing, not the, not the conditions do the best we can with the conditions we have, you know, so that not to be despised, but don't expect the conditioned realm, you know, don't expect it to satisfy you or to be, uh, you know, something that that you can bind to yourself and keep as a kind of petrified, beautiful experience. So this kind of, this beautiful image, kiss the joy as it flies. It means that, that the joy of life is, is something to, you know, that we, we can, we, we recognize, we appreciate, but we don't grasp. We let things go, we let conditions change according to their nature. We're not, control freaks anymore. We don't have to make everything right and arrange everything properly and and make everything, you know, what we think it should be. We can do the best we can, but in terms of, you know, just like moral principles of non-violence and Personal, you know, how to, how to live our lives in, the, on this planet in these forms is to, like five precepts, eight, eight precepts and onward. You know, taking, 
you know, determining to use our existence within this form, this limited form, so that it is a it, it, it is a, a form that with intention to do good and refrain from acting on on uh, negative impulses or harmful do harmful things with intention. So tomorrow is uh, Sunday. And uh, Chitters Katina, so I have to, uh, I'm getting up early, uh, leaving five o'clock in the morning to go to Chitters, and uh, so I'll, I won't be sitting up, because I've got to be bright and inspiring for the Chitters Katina. <laughs> because now I'm in my, my, uh, Swan song mode. Uh, <clears throat> I've been to two katinas already, saying goodbye, and now I've got two more. <laughs> Chitters them here, and then the the day. This body. Bye bye, out the gate. <laughs> And so this is this is life, isn't it? The, the the coming because I came here, then I'm leaving. I mean, this is just the natural flow of phenomena. And then you know what's left is a memory. And then even now, and when I go back to my kuti, what what will I be if you're still sitting here, and I'm in my kuti? I'm a memory in your, there's a memory of me, maybe you remember, Ajahn Sumedho. But that's a memory, that's not, that's not anything real. It's a, it's a sanya, sankara memory. So there's a way of, of reminding yourself that, that, uh, you know, are we really people? You know, is there a real kind of permanent Ajahn Sumedho? You know, kind of, you know, real, substantial, essential Ajahn Sumato that exists, or is it Sanya Sankara, impermanent condition, Anatta? And the, the, these are like the tools the Buddha gave us to reflect on the way it is. It doesn't diminish, you know, it's not like trying to deny feelings. Or emotions, but it, it's putting them in a context we can deal with them and see them and, and, and learn from them. So there's the, like the conventional reality of Ajahn Sumato. <laughs> and so, you know, I'm passport and, uh, uh, you know, in terms of the conventional reality, I am Ajahn Sumedho. But in terms of Dhamma, that's merely conventional reality. That's a perception. You know, that's Sanya Sankara, Kanda. 
and so like this this way of reflecting helps us to you know to it isn't to deny or suppress feeling but to to keep instructing ourselves with wisdom so we be, we we become more confident more informed of reality more present in it you know reality is now it's not personal and so this kind of practice of, that the Buddha gave us, you know, it, it, it's really, uh, you know, it leads you onward to that, to a real recognition of anatta, non-self. Because the self is, you know, we we can, you know, get very you know, personal relationships and personal feelings and the self becomes so, you know, our reality. What I think, my feeling and my view, my opinion, it becomes so real, so so uh, powerfully convincing. You know, that what I think in me and my life is so, you know, is something really solid, you know, important serious business or is it so it's like like through this reflective style and actually you're you keep reminding the more you remind yourself of this after a while because you are every time you remind yourself you're actually awakened at that point you know you're you're in that's it. Even though you, you might get lost in your own problems the next moment. But you're breaking through these, you know, you're breaking down the cycles, the, the momentum of your karma, of your ignorance, through, through this kind of recognizing here and now, the silence, sound of silence, the 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 uh, feeling the emotion the the uh, physical sensation emotional experience that you that you are having at this moment is like this and that awareness and the world is like this and then that which is aware of the world is not the world. It's this. So then you, you discern non-suffering. Non-suffering is bliss. Where suffering is, isn't. <laughs> suffering is not blissful, by the way. <laughs> So I offer this for your reflection. <laughs>